Our scripture reading uh, for our uh, sermon this morning comes from two passages, actually. Uh, one is John 5, 39 to 47, and the other is Galatians 3, 16. And you may be thinking, Luke, we read John 5, 39 to 47 last week, and we read Luke 24 last week. So uh, you might think I've lost my mind or that I'm sort of on repeat somehow, but I'm not. Uh that, that was intentional. Uh, last week, we began our introduction to the book of Genesis. This week, we conclude our introduction to the book of Genesis. And so we're still uh, using those texts as uh, really we're looking at the whole of Genesis, but we're using those texts to remind us what Genesis is all about. And so let me read John 5, 39 to 47 and Galatians three sixteen. 16. Uh, before I read that, though, let's pray together. Our Father, we, we thank you for your word, uh, for your truth, uh, for the love of Jesus that we find in Scripture, uh, even in the book of Genesis. And we pray, Father, that you would teach us from Genesis about Jesus, that we would love him more, that we would delight in him more, that we would rejoice in him more, that he would be our all in all. And Father, we pray that by your spirit, you would open our eyes to that end and move our hearts to that end as we hear your word this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, uh, John chapter 5, verses 39 to 47. These are the words of Jesus. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And then Galatians uh, chapter 3, verse 16 says this. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Well, I, uh, I love a well-told story, uh, whether it's uh, White Christmas or Elf whether a Pixar film or something directed by Tim Burton or Guillermo del Toro, uh, great stories, and in all of those cases, great movies, uh, grip me. They move me, and, and normally, if I'm honest, and it's a really good movie, they bring me to tears. But you've gotta love M. Night Shyamalan movies. Uh, the thing about M. Night Shyamalan movies is you never know how it's going to end, and when the ending comes, it causes you to completely reinterpret the movie. Things you thought you knew 
turned out to be wrong because the ending worked backwards and changed everything. I actually think life is like that. Uh, when we get to the new creation, resurrection will work backwards and everything we thought we knew will be transformed in light of that glorious end. But the book of Genesis is like that as well, at least a little like that. Um, not, not that you could not see it coming, but really almost nobody could. Uh, Jesus rebuked his disciples on the road to Emmaus for not seeing it coming, which seems to imply we should have. But even today, when we read the Old Testament or when we read the book of Genesis, we often miss how the story of Genesis leads us to the story of Jesus. Well, last week, I began uh, the introduction to the book of Genesis. I talked about two things last week, genesis, uh, genre and author. And this week, I'm really just going to talk about one thing, which are themes. Uh, this week, uh, I'm going to preach the whole book, uh, the, the book of Genesis as a whole, uh, before I go in and preach the book in its parts, right? So we're going to get the, the big story, obviously not every detail, but the big story of what's going on. And, and that's because I, I don't want us to lose the forest for the trees, right? As we say, right? I want us to get the big picture. I want us to hear the whole story. And, and there are lots of themes in Genesis that we could trace out, of course. Uh, we could talk about God's blessing and curse, his, his presence and his promises, his covenant and his church. And all of those are there. And, and we'll hit on them uh, as we go uh, throughout the book. But when you boil it down to its simplest, there are really four themes in the book of Genesis that stand out. They, they are the blessings of God. They are what is broken by the fall, and they are the content of God's covenant promises. And really, they are very simple. Land, seed, rule, and rest. And so what we're going to look at this morning is, is those four things, land, seed, rule, and rest, traced through the book of Genesis and fulfilled in Jesus. I hope uh, you're going to enjoy this because I enjoy this. This is fun for me, right? Getting to just look at the whole book, look at these themes, trace them through Genesis and see how they're fulfilled in Jesus. So first, land. Everybody at some point in their life longs for home. We long for a place to rest our bones, to settle down, to stop running, a place that's safe, safe to be us, a place where our needs are met, a place where with food on the table and a warm bed at night. And some people never experience this, right? And may, maybe they, they only have a vague feeling that something's not right, but they can't even put words to it because it's so unfamiliar. Or maybe they've even become numb to hope because of the reality of brokenness in their world. And yet others of us enjoy this blessing every day, right? We, we get to go home at the end of a long day and we enjoy the blessing so much. It's so familiar to us that we actually take it for granted. But land or home or an inheritance is one of the great blessings of God. In fact, Genesis uh, begins in verses one and two with these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The earth was without form 
and void. Now, those words, they rhyme in Hebrew, and, and they mean something like unformed and unfilled, or formless and empty. And, and those two words speak of the, the, the shape of the world and the content of the world, and neither one is particularly good. And so the first thing God does is set about to form the formless, to shape the world into something habitable, to create a land with trees and vegetation, to fashion a home. God first shapes the world and then a garden in the world. And Adam and Eve, he puts into that garden home. And it is good, right? It supplies all their needs. It's safe, especially if Adam will do his job and protect it. But they, they don't live there long. Adam and Eve rebel and are cast out of God's presence, out of the garden, and Adam and Eve are then homeless, landless. The land itself is cursed. Rather than being inherently fruitful, it will produce thorns and thistles. God has given humanity uh, the, the job of cultivating the earth, of extending Eden, of making the wilderness into a garden home. But that would be harder now because the, the land would fight back until it ultimately won, right? Until generation after generation was placed in the ground with which they had fought their whole lives long. Humanity is nevertheless, though, to, to spread out and cultivate the earth. But they rebel. Uh, even against that, they, they try to hunker down in one place. They, they build a city with a tower. Maybe you know the story. And they're less concerned about God's call to make the world into a home than they are about the greatness of their own name. But God breaks up the party and, and disperses humanity throughout the world. Then God calls Abraham. One man out of all the nations, he calls Abraham to leave his home, Ur, to leave everything that is familiar, everything that is safe, and to become a wanderer on the earth, to become homeless. But God also promises to give Abraham a home, right? To give him a land to Abraham and to his descendants. And this is one of the, those great Abrahamic promises. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And when he got there, God said in Genesis 12, verse 7, to your offspring, I will give this land. Land is really one of the controlling promises in the entire Old Testament. And yet what is so amazing about this book is that this central promise in the book of Genesis is never fulfilled. I mean, sure, Abraham dwells in Canaan mostly, but he never quite settles down. He has to leave when there's a famine in the land, which means the land isn't doing its job. Jacob has to flee the land from his brother. Joseph is forcibly taken from the land and sold into slavery. And by the end of the book, Jacob and his, by that point, great family, 70 people in all, again, must leave the land because of a famine and settle in Egypt. The book ends with the promise of land unfulfilled. God's people are waiting for God to keep his promise of life in a land of abundance. Now, you likely know at least the, the outline of the rest of the story, right? Exodus picks up where Genesis leaves off. Uh, God again promises Israel a land. He brings them out of Egypt, but they still wander in the wilderness. By the end of the first five books of the Bible, Israel is, is only on the edge 
of the land. But it's not until Joshua that they finally enter. And yet Israel's entrance into the land is not a happily ever after story, right? While they, there are many ups and downs, the story ends with exile. Like Adam, like Joseph, Israel is removed from the land. Now they, they return, right? But, but things are never quite the same again. By the end of the Old Testament, we are left longing and hoping and waiting and wondering, will God fulfill his promise of life in a land of abundance? Has God given up on his people? Is God faithful? But we're not ready. Uh, we're not ready for the end of the story yet. So first land, second seed. What's a home without family, right? So some of us are, are, are loners, but more often than not, uh, even if we are loners, it's because we've been, we've been hurt by friends or family. For the most part, we want to be surrounded by family and friends. We realize that the need for community, uh, the, the norm, right, though, though not necessary, but the norm is, you know, boy meets girl and they get married. The two become one. Individuals become a couple, then a family, right? The two become three or four or more. And there is a kind of a natural inclination, right? To be fruitful and multiply. Well, as I said before, when God created the world, it actually started out unformed and unfilled. It was formless and empty. On days one through three, God formed the world. But on, on days four through six, he began to fill it. He filled it with all kinds of amazing creatures, eight-legged octopuses and dodo birds, right? Silly-looking platypuses and long-necked giraffes, right? And he, he told all of them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Finally, God made man. And man, too, was to fill the earth. Everything was to multiply according to their kind. Even the vegetation was to bear their seed, each according to their kind. Of course, you know, things didn't happen quite as planned. Uh, the, the, again, the fall happened, right? The great disruption, the, the perfection, the order, the beauty of the world was marred. The family began to break apart. Blame entered into the marriage relationship together with shame. The husband became authoritarian. The wife became subversive. And bearing children would not be so easy anymore. The first child even murders the second. And yet there is this promise of seed seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. The idea being that the serpent who incited the whole mess would be overthrown, defeated, and crushed under the boot. The rest of Genesis, of course, becomes a, a kind of where's Waldo looking for the seed of the woman. And so we follow the, the lineage of Adam to Noah. Oh, maybe Noah. No, he, he's good, but he's not that good. And so we follow uh, Noah down to Abraham. Maybe Abraham. No, uh, he too is promised a seed, still waiting for the child of promise. So we follow through Isaac and Jacob and Jacob's 12 sons. Maybe Joseph, he seems pretty good, but well, he's good, right? But again, he's not that good. He, even he dies outside the land. And throughout, we see the challenge of bearing seed. Sarah is barren and God must intervene to provide a son. Rebecca is barren, and God must intervene to provide a son. Rachel is barren, and God must intervene to, pro to provide a son, right? That the promise of a seed to come and crush the head of the serpent will only come by the miraculous intervention of God. 
We do not have the power to give life. And so we are left waiting for the seed. Of course, God promises not just one seed, but a multitude. God promises to make Abraham's offspring as the dust of the earth and the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And Israel does grow into a, a great nation, right? Multiple times her seed are threatened. Pharaoh puts to death Israel's sons. The serpent has the upper hand in Egypt for a time. Years later, the exile happens. And during the siege of Jerusalem, Israel's mothers cook their own children to stay alive. The, 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 it seems like things are so bad, the woman is doing the serpent's work for him. Serpents are crushed here and there, right? Victories happen, right? But the seed of the woman never comes. Satan's upper hand remains in place. But the end is not yet. So we have land and seed and third rule. Now, I'm not uh, inherently an orderly person. It's true. Just ask my mom, poor woman, right? Growing up, I was a mess. Uh, and and it's, it's not that I had no interest in cleaning my room. I really just didn't know how. I, I couldn't grasp the concept. I, I wanted order, but I didn't know how to bring it. In fact, I, I remember uh, one time my brother, who was and still is an inherently orderly person, right? I remember him telling me his, quote, secret of, of giving everything a place and then putting it there. It seemed to me like magic. It sounded simple, but I knew it was some kind of voodoo. And though I had glimpsed behind the curtain, I still had yet to be initiated into those mystic arts, right? I, I just couldn't do it. All of us, of course, are differently wired. But there is something about order that is intrinsic to humanity. There are patterns to life, customs and conventions, habits and routines that make life work. Some of them are imposed on us. Uh, in Genesis 1, God created the lights in the sky, the sun and the moon, we're told, Genesis 1.14, to be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. That is, the sun and the moon, they, they mark off the patterns of time. And yet other patterns we just naturally fall into. We want to create order out of the chaos. That's what God is doing on the six days of creation. He's bringing order out of the chaos. And that's what God commanded humanity to do when he told humanity to rule. Now, this applies both to humanity's relationship to the land itself. We are to subdue the earth. Genesis 1, verse 28, and our relationship to other creatures. We are to have dominion. And the point is not some totalitarian, oppressive, self-serving dominance, but creating order in order to bring out the fruitfulness and beauty inherent in creation. Dominion speaks to order, but also to freedom and to influence, right? Man had the freedom to act in the world, to influence the world, to bring order, to make what is, uh, was inhospitable for life into what would be hospitable for life, to make the wilderness into a garden, to extend Eden throughout the earth. Now, of course, it wasn't long, right? Chapter three of the first book of the Bible before that order was upended. The animals begin to rule, right? The demon-possessed serpent takes a leading role in human destiny. And as a result, the ground itself fights back and is no longer receptive to human ordering the way it once was. 
human beings become slaves. First, slaves of sin. Uh, notice uh, early in Genesis, sin was crouching at Cain's door, but he was to master it, but he didn't. Of course, later we become slaves of other people. Human beings rule one another harshly. Abraham has authority in his home, but Canaan around him is unruly. God promises kings will come from him, but in his lifetime, we see no such thing. Joseph dreams that his brothers will bow down to him, a dream of ruling, dominion, authority, but it's a dream that gets him thrown into a well and sold into slavery. There's an upswing, though, a resurrection of sorts in Joseph's life. He does gain a position of authority, first in Potiphar's house, then in Pharaoh's court. In fact, he brings order to Egypt like no one before him, right? Managing and overseeing the welfare of that nation, demonstrating the life-giving rule and order that God wants his people to bring. Of course, sadly, it doesn't last. Uh, you probably know the story. Pharaoh and Joseph eventually die, and there arises a new king in Israel. Who did not know Joseph? Israel is eventually enslaved, not ruling, but being ruled, oppressed, used. God brings them out. It's the great theme of the book of Exodus, right? And, and gives them authority in the promised land, but they rebel against God. They turn to idols and God gives them over to the nations to be ruled by them. Whenever Israel acts like animals, giving in to their base and idolatrous desires, God treats them like animals and gives them over to be ruled. But when they turn to him, God raises up a deliverer. Deliverer after deliverer comes, right? Judging Israel, ruling Israel until finally God gives them a king. A king to rule justly, to bring justice, order, and equity. And so you have David, right? the great king. And God promises that one of David's descendants will sit on his throne forever. His seed will reign in the land. And so land and seed and rule all come together which is the way God intended it to be from the beginning, right? God, even in his promise to Abraham, he said, to your offspring, I will give this land and kings will come from you and they will possess the gates of their enemies, right? And so land and seed and rule all come together. But David's descendants don't live up. Even the wise Solomon acts foolishly. The kingdom is torn in two. The rulers rule selfishly and disorder rather than order reigns in Israel. Eventually, even the king they have is taken away. Exile, once again, seems to put an end to God's promises. God's people become servants of the nations once again. And yes, there is a return from exile, but, but a king in David's line never seems to ascend to the throne. Once again, we get to the end of the Old Testament, and we are wondering, have God's promises failed? Is God faithful? Will he keep his word? Land, seed, rule, and fourth, rest. Rest. There, there are countries where rest is a way of life. Uh, uh, where, where whole country, the whole country slows down for an afternoon nap. At least that's what I'm told. America is not one of those countries. Right? We, we value work and effort and efficiency, and naps are not efficient. Rest is not efficient. I'll rest when I'm dead, we say. Of course, the problem is with that way of thinking, our rest may come sooner than we want. But even in a country that values work over rest, we still long for it. 
Right? We long for the weekend, for the holiday, for the vacation. We long for some breathing room. Biblically, that is rest, but it's more. Rest was God's idea, of course, right? After God created the world on the seventh day, God rested. God ceased from his work. He completed it and then celebrated the work of his hands and then consecrated the Sabbath day as a holiday to cease and celebrate his completed work. When Adam and Eve are placed in the garden, it was a place of rest. All the other blessings reach their climax in rest, peace and safety in the land, community coexisting together, order in the world. The world is what it ought to be, which leads to rest. Or at least it was what it ought to be for a minute. Sin always makes things messy, right? It brings disorder where there was order, danger where there was safety, division where there was unity. In short, sin undoes the peace of creation. Adam and Eve must find their own home out in a dangerous world. The ground will be less responsive. Work becomes toil. Relationships are broken. Guilt and blame and shame enter in, even murder. Abraham, the chosen one, becomes a wanderer. Where is the rest in that? Enemies are all around, even within the family of God, as Joseph finds out. There are four tastes of rest but nothing settled, nothing full, nothing lasting. Then there's slavery in Egypt, no rest there. God brings them out. He brings them into the promised land. And Joshua tells us God fulfills his promises. And we're told the land had rest from war. And Israel can breathe. But of course it doesn't last. Because of their idolatry, Israel, Israel is continually given over to their enemies. No rest there. Kings help when they are good, but when they mislead the people, when their restless hearts turn to idols, the land has no rest. Ending again in exile. So that ironically enough, the land can have rest because Israel is removed from it. They have rest from Israel's refusal to rest and, of course, rest from Israel's sin. Well, where will it all end? We have these promises of land and seed and rule and rest. Will God be faithful? Will Israel enter into the land? Will the seed of the woman come? Will a king in the line of David restore order? Will rest ever become a reality? When we come to the New Testament, the situation has not gotten better. First pages of the New Testament, much of Israel is scattered. Those who remain in the land suffer under a foreign occupation, Roman rule. But there is an expectation and a hope of the Messiah, a son of David, the seed of the woman to come and crush the head of Rome, to restore the kingdom of Israel and bring rest to the land. Enter Jesus. And he, he, is, he is a child in the line of David, but he doesn't look like a king. He's humble. He doesn't use his power for himself, but to serve. Will he overthrow Rome? Will he bring peace to the land of Israel? Will he sit on the throne of his father, David? Rather than establish David's rule, Jesus is put to death. Another seed come to an end. 
Rather than rest, Jesus spent his life as a wandering teacher. Rather than uh, rest from his enemies, he's overtaken by them. Rather than ruling, he is ruled, brought under the unjust authority of Roman rule. He is cursed on the cross, effectively removed from the land, right? Exiled from life itself. Rather than receiving the fullness of the promises, rather than life in abundance, rather than God's blessing, Jesus received the curse of death. Not promises, but condemnation. It looks as if Jesus' story is a little different from Adam's or Israel's. Adam is removed from the garden, Israel from the promised land, and Jesus from life itself. The seed come and go. Enemies rule and oppress. There is no peace, no rest in the land. Until the third day. Suddenly we realize what Jesus has been doing. The serpent struck his heel, but Jesus was crushing his head, taking away the power of Satan by bearing our guilt in our place, taking away the penalty of sin by dying in our place. Jesus is restored to the land of the living in the resurrection. The seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David has conquered. He not only rose, but he ascended. Hebrews says he entered his rest into the heavenly promised land. More than that, when Jesus entered heaven, he was seated on the throne of God and given all authority in heaven and on earth. The Jewish king has been given the throne, not just the throne of David, but better, the throne of heaven. He has been given not just the land of Canaan, but heaven and earth, promise fulfilled. In Jesus, the seed, the land has been given to the one who rules over all as he rests seated in the heavenly places. We can look at that and celebrate it, but you still might ask, okay, well, that's great for Jesus. What makes that good news for us? If we believe in Jesus, Scripture says we are joined to Jesus as a bride to her husband, and we get to participate in his victory. We become children of Abraham by faith in Jesus, says Paul, people as the stars of heaven and the sand of the seashore from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We are given a heavenly inheritance, the promised land, which is held in heaven for us, the new Jerusalem for which we wait and long. We are made kings and priests to serve our God, restored to our place of authority in the world, which we exercise now over sin and ruling desires and whenever we bring a little order to the chaos of, the, of this age, we enjoy rest. Rest from guilt because Jesus has taken it. Rest from sin because we are given his spirit. But even more, the hope of rest, the hope of the fullness of rest, dwelling with our father in the land with his people because of his son on the last day at the resurrection of the dead. And for that, like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, we long and wait as pilgrims and strangers, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the seed of the woman, the child of Abraham who crushed the head of the serpent, ruled over sin and death, has taken up residence in the land and so entered his rest. The one who fulfilled the promises and now welcomes all who put their trust in him. Let's pray. Our Father, we marvel at what you have done in your son, Jesus, that all of your promises that we can trace throughout all of scripture, not just Genesis, all of your promises have been fulfilled in him. 
Father, we thank you for that. Help us to see Jesus more clearly, to believe in him more fully, to rest in him, to seek him out, to to seek to see him and know him, believe in him and trust in him day by day, every day. We pray these things in Jesus' name.